Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am the co-founder of Financing Solutions. For those of you who don't know about Financing Solutions, for the last 12 years, we have provided very easy to set up lines of credit for small businesses, and I will be your host for today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. If you're interested in learning more about business line of credit, which I would highly recommend, I've always had a business line of credit uh, for my businesses. Uh, please visit us at fscreditline.com. That's FS as in Financing Solutions, creditline.com. Over the last 25 years, I have built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range, including two companies that have made the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. I love learning from people with business experience, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Lance uh, Psycho from uh, F9 Productions. Uh, Lance Psycho is a multi-talented serial entrepreneur with, diver- with a diverse background in architecture, construction, and real estate development. He is the co-founder of F9 Productions, uh, a premier design and build firm based in Longmont, Longmont uh, Cal- uh, Colorado. Excuse me. He is also a respected industry leader who lectures at the University of Boulder and co-hosts Inside the Firm, a popular architectural business podcast that provides insights and advice on entrepreneurship and small business ownership. Lance, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. So Thanks today's so much topic, for having me here. It's I, a know, pleasure. I, I think it's going to be a great time uh, topic because I certainly can add to it as well. Keys for building a profitable company in good and bad times. And I think the key word here, of course, profitable, but uh, is good and bad times. Because if you're not an experienced business owner, Lance, would you agree that um, you're not a true entrepreneur until you've gone through the bad times? 100%. It's super easy to get over cocky, overconfident, in the good times and not recognize that we live in a cyclical business cycle uh, that is funded by the Fed, right? And there's this boom and bust cycle that just sort of happens to us. And to to miss that point, I think, is one of the biggest points we try to get across on our show is that, look, you are subject to the Austrian business cycle. Even though it's a theory, it is real. It happens in practice. And that's where all of the people who miss that point or get again overly confident, get weeded out as yeah, soon and as we I, hit I the agree next with recession, you. Like, I think, that so there's a couple of things I would add to, to what you're saying, which is hit, hits the nail right on the head. You know, so I, you know, I've been actually close to 30 years, been an entrepreneur now, and every 10 years, there is a major recession, right? And, uh, you know, and so much so that when my business partner and I started Financing Solutions 12 years ago, and he was an experienced business person before he and I started uh, uh, Financing Solutions together, uh, he, uh, we started another company, uh, Elite Funeral Funding, which is one of our better uh, Financing Solutions and Elite are both really good companies. And we started Elite because both he and I had uh, experience what it was like 
when with when a business is down and and we wanted another one to counteract the cycles for when that business is down and another one might be up and um so it's it's you know we my point saying is we both talked about what are we going to do when a recession hits All right and because we had experience in it and have you had that same type of experience too? That is exactly why F9 Production was born. It was born in the height of the Great Recession. Both Alex and I, Alex Gore is my business partner, were laid off from our respective uh, firms who were both, by the way, when I, with the firm I work for in Boulder is now defunct because they did not pass that test uh, when the downturn happened. And then the firm that Alex is working for in New York City, very high profile architect, uh, world famous architect, same same sort of thing, did not pass that test, ended up laying off half the folks. So we started our firm in the height of the Great Recession and learning from the mistakes that those folks make, made, make and made. And our, so our biggest, you know, that has always been our driving factor of how we do it is we, we have been preparing yeah. since inception for the next recession. And, and the biggest lessons we learned is that for speaking with architects specifically, but maybe this is a, a, a broader a perspective that can be applied to other entrepreneurs in a broader perspective is, as you just said, Stephen, you know, every 10 years, I agree with that. I think it's either, either you know, about every seven to 10 years, you, you hit these downturns. So, you know, the biggest the biggest thing that we've tried to do is uh, where I believe that there, the phrase diversity through strength is real is diversity of businesses, diversity of clientele, the ability to scale up and scale back down. I think that's where the overconfidence comes into play, especially with architects is like at the end of last year, we were commanding some of the highest fees that we've ever commanded, for, for example, just on small remodels or or new houses. And then all of a sudden. What happens every single year in Colorado is it, there's a mini cyclical cycle that happens, in, and that is the holiday season hits. Everybody kind of goes to sleep, uh, so to speak. They, they the first of the year comes back around. Maybe they've spent too much on the holidays. Maybe uh, maybe maybe they're looking ahead towards taxes. But in that first quarter, sales are are incredibly slow. So all of a sudden, these very high fees that you're commanding in quarter four of 2022. Where is the pivot and where's the, where's that bottom? And the, the goal is to, for us, it has always been like, we need to find the bottom really quick. Like, what's the quickest way we can find the bottom so we can establish where the new, where the fees have sort of reset for the next year. And then hopefully we accelerate again towards, towards the end of the year. So our goal has always been from the beginning is diversity through strength with all the, uh, all the kind of architectural services that we employ, the online courses that we've created for other architects, the podcasts, which we have, you know, ad revenue that comes through and then the multiplication from F9 to F12 and F14. Yeah. I'm going to echo company. what you're saying. You know, so listen, I had this. So one of the companies that I had that made the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies, it was called healthcareseeker.com, right? We placed travel nurses. Uh, these are nurses, registered nurses who work throughout the United States at hospitals on long-term temporary assignments. And we went from, from 1 million to 3 million to 7 million to 11 million, right? And uh, in four years. And we, uh, we were really a good company. I mean, it was, it was that was my third company. And by that time I knew much better about how to run a business. And the, I went into that business 
and, and you'll laugh at this, Lance, because I went into business because I think it's recession proof. I'm like, oh, people are always going to need nurses. Mm. They're, they're always in shortage, right? Mm -hmm. And for the first time in the history of the nursing shortage, that this is the 2008 recession, and everybody loses their health insurance in the United States, and people stop going to the hospitals. And there's no nurse, nursing shortage. Okay. Then the most expensive nurses are these travel nurses. So, so I said, okay, I'm going to bear down. And I said, you know, we'll, all we need to do is survive this and um, our competitors will maybe go out of business and then we'll be able to pick up bigger part of market share. This is a $13 billion industry, by the way. So, I mean, I'm only 11 million. So at the time. So uh, I, I, from my experience, I was an economics major in college, which doesn't mean much, but typically a recession lasts about 18 <laughs> months. What I didn't know at the time was that there are uh, worldwide recessions, country recessions, and industry recessions. So my industry and in travel nurses didn't come back for seven years. I only could handle it for about four and mm. a half mentally. And then I, I had to pull the plug. But my, I'm trying to illustrate here is that the, there are recessions that happen in the United States every seven and 10 years, but there's also industry in, uh, recessions that don't happen in corresponding with the uh, and maybe you see that in housing market as well. Although housing market often is such a big part of the economy, it affects everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're seeing it right now with the uh, tech industry, right? We're having a huge tech recession right now. I mean, the, every week I go to every day almost I go to LinkedIn, and on the right hand side of the you know their their screen there, they've got the the headlines and the LinkedIn editorials about Apple laying people off, um, places like Disney, which you could argue Disney has sort of become this hybrid tech company because of all the online streaming and everything like that. And that's the other thing. I'm glad you brought up housing because I try to focus people who are um, the ultimate bears about housing. I think obviously I, I started, I you know, during this podcast already within the first 10 minutes, I've already talked about and mentioned the Great Recession, which if everybody, uh, if, they, if somehow you don't know what it was caused by, it was over lending by the government for underqualified people and in with these adjustable rate mortgages, which then caused this huge financial issue once all once all those sort of tanked after the mortgages raised and everything like that. So we're still scarred 100% by that mentally. And I think we just expect, especially during this last sort of weird recession, which we had during COVID, which was induced by the government, which is the idea that like then all of a sudden there was a lot more people, the housing uh, prices just went through the roof and in Colorado specifically, a lot of that was, well, even if places like Idaho or Utah, where you saw all of, a lot of transplants, even in Florida, where they were coming from different states, whether they're moving because of political reasons, or a lot of it was just because then we moved to this much more hybrid or full remote working. So people were like, well, why am I living in high tax California when I could go to, let's say, Idaho, lower taxes, I can still perform my job and everything like that. So it put this downward pressure on a very, an already artificially scarce uh, environment in terms of the housing stock. 
in places like Colorado and you saw, you know, crazy gains. I mean, stuff that would make um, Jim Cramer over at uh, CNBC jealous, and he probably was, about how much we were gaining in equity if you owned any kind of real estate, like 30, 40% uh, gains year over year, depending on that. So what I I always try to give uh, help, I try to focus people in on that are the doom and the gloom people related to the housing economy is, is like, look, I think there's these there's these micro pockets that you just don't understand because you're not a local. And then they say, well, your blinders are on because obviously, you know, you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you. And it's like, look, for example, in Boulder County and Boulder, uh, very affluent area in the United States, equivalent to San Francisco in terms of uh, housing prices at this point. And you look back at the 2008, 2009 recession and you see that the, the price has only dipped about 1%. Like during that whole downturn, it was like 1%, 1% down. That was it. It was mostly just flat. It's still better than uh, keeping your money in the bank in terms of fiat currency and everything. Like it was still a better investment for you to own own property. Well, why is that? Why does a place like Boulder County only get a, is, is why was it insulated? And it was literally insulated about tw- in, ni- in the late 1990s. And this is some of the nuances that people don't understand. You know, stemming from what Portland did, Boulder did something very similar. They basically said, look, here's a blue ring. We're going to call it the water ring. And if you try to build beyond this water ring, we will not give you water. So all of a sudden, and then and then the second thing they did is they, they the city councils and the local governments started buying up all of this stuff called open space. Well, all that is is land. They were just trying to make, they were, they, they took all of the, uh, uh, older farms and they bought them up, put them under 99 year leases and said, you're not going to build here either. We're going to protect the open space because there's this huge pushback in the nineties of, of, against uh, suburban sprawl and stuff like that. So what does that do? It creates an artificial scarcity of land that you can build on. And then you add the third big thing. And this is, this is true. If you look, if you go to the National Association of Home Builders, and you just, or you just put it into Google, NAHB, and you said uh, regulation, a cost of regulation in the construction industry. Almost a third of every house, new house that you build or buy is eaten up, the cost is, is eaten up and then passed on to the consumer of all the regulations, all of the new energy regulations, all of the new building codes, some of which are complete cronyism. Such as, uh, you know, the idea that every single family house needs to be, have a sprinkler system in it now. That was 100% through, you know, the lobbyists and, and those working it in so that they could get it guaranteed that they have work in the end. And then now what, that, now what that's done is instead of just it being, you know, with Boulder in itself being subject to this, it's now actually grown to Boulder County. So this office I'm sitting in right now that we designed, built, and developed is in Longmont, Colorado. It is uh, in Boulder County. Every single city in Boulder County and the whole county adopted all of those strategies. So what? So now I'm sitting here in, in an office building where it's the same sort of thing. We are seeing, uh, just because interest rates r- risen, it's pushed down You know what you can uh, sell a house for or any kind of property because people can only afford so much. But uh, the dip is about the same. It's about the same. So now we have a countywide issue with 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 this, where it's like, look, this is a mac. This is a micro example of, yes, maybe housing in general in the United States is experiencing a recession. We're seeing you know, last quarter and the quarter before you saw some of the lowest amount of permits pulled in the industry for single family new new, new single family starts. But at the same time. 
it's it's like, well, what does that mean? That means that there's even still more less houses to buy with a crazy amount of demand for people, you know, millennials like my generation who are between 30 and 40, ready to get into that first starter house. And then they're competing against the boomers who are all cash flush. So it's this compounding issue of like, yes, yes, it's harder to get money and lending and everything. But at the same time, it's just as hard to get a house. Uh, and and, and then, that, then, there's, then there's, I guess, the fourth factor. And the fourth factor is what happened after the Great Recession in terms of the, for the construction industry was you had a lot of people just quit because they said, I am tired of going through this seven to 10 year cycle. And it was the older folks like the boomers and the, the generation uh, above them, the older general contractors, the older contractors, the older builders who knew, you know, were seasoned veterans and everything. And they just said, look, I'm done after this one. I am done with it. And now you have a, an even bigger shortage and scarcity of labor. So it's this huge compacting, compounding effect um, that is still keeping me thriving over at F9 and F14. I mean, we're we didn't think we were going to hire this year. And sure enough, we've got job applications out there or job postings looking to hire in the spring here again and expand when it, it looks like all signs point to. We're yeah, I mean, in it's there's always something being thrown at you at your business. It's never I mean, financing solutions has been really good. So for me, for for 12 years, um, but it, typically you have lots of ups and downs. Um and, and Elite's been great too, but um, for me. But you know, the one thing I would so a lot. One of the things I think that's really helped us. And so listen, the second company that I started is called ExpertSeeker.com. It was a great company, very profitable, six million dollar in revenue, but the profits were excellent. Um, I saved a lot of that money. I, I, I didn't go out and buy expensive cars. I didn't go out and buy an expensive home. I was never, we were never that into jewelry or any of those things. Our big vice probably was you know, expensive vacations, but you know, it was, we, we were making a lot of money and I used that money too, to buy a building, uh, a very big commercial building, which I then, you know, rented. And, and for those of you who don't know this, the number one way that small business owners build wealth is by um, buying the office buildings that they are going to then rent back to themselves. So it's for a small business and mm -hmm. you know anything over under $20 million is still considered a small business. You know, you if you're so this is my point. If I hadn't done well with that second business, if I had not saved money. I would not have been able to weather the storms of recessions, of mm. other issues that go on. And you know, you know, most people think, oh, well, you're a business owner, you're you're making you 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 have a lot of money, right? The problem with what they don't know, someone who doesn't own a business, is that a, a small business owner's uh, uh, wealth or or cash is tied up in receivables. Uh, if you're a B two B business. Uh, sometimes it's tied up in inventory, right? And and so you know you don't pay your you don't really also want to pay yourself a big salary because then you got to make pay, make payroll taxes. So you know it's so my point being is that prepare for a recession. It's going to come, it, and problems are going to come, and and if you have money. 
you'll weather the storm and you know just lance just like me uh is a serial entrepreneur i often say if someone had a successful business and then i'm like okay yeah go do it again let's go see how how good you really are because it's you know sometimes you get lucky and uh so you know what 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 would you add to that lance I'm so glad you brought up salary. I was I was going to ask you what what your opinion was on salary. Uh, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think that what I would add to it is just a little bit more expansion on that. So what one of the one of the fundamental things I think that is fundamental to your success as a business owner, especially if you're just starting out, is it once you get enough cash flow going, uh, you need to figure out what is the bare minimum you can give yourself for a salary. Get yourself on a W-2. And the reason why I say do a W-2 is because it, it, that's going to force you to, there's two reasons. The first, first one is it's going to force you to keep decent books. You, you know, whether you're keeping them yourselves or you hire a bookkeeper. We didn't even hire a bookkeeper for the first three years. Once we went to go buy our first actual uh, residences and homes that we uh, that we bought in, two, in 2013, then we, then we got a bookkeeper on board because the bank wanted to see checking the boxes, which is my second point about that is, Bankers, uh, no, no, no offense, but this is just my opinion, is bankers are not creative people. I don't mean that in, in disrespect. I mean it in they, their job is to check boxes. They have to check the boxes they have, and they have to run it by and they're because they're under an immense amount of regula- regulations um, from the higher ups in, in their bank and then the Fed and, and, and all the way up is they, they want. They, so one of the check boxes they want you to see checked is, are you a W-2? Like, are you showing a consistent amount of income so then you can hopefully qualify for that first house? Or like you said, that, that that's a really good point for that first office building that you buy and lease back to yourself. Most business, I, uh, there's a gal I've interviewed a couple times on our show. Her name is Michelle Siler Tucker. She's the author of Exit Rich. And she, she she's bought and sold more businesses, I think, than anybody in the United States. And when I, I read her book, I went through her course, um, we, we, we have uh, implemented things in our office to eventually possibly sell the firm, whether it's internal or external. And one of the biggest points she makes is like, especially if you're a service-based business, well, what is the asset they're even buying? Sure, they're sort of buying either like the reputation online. Maybe you have this insane Google business listing with like a thousand five-star reviews. You have repeat clients. Maybe you have government work and contracts and stuff like that. But one of the biggest ones is uh, inarguably is physical assets. So having office space, having having buildings that you that you can package in with that, you know, a presence on Main Street. Those are sort of the things that you need to tackle. And then the the, the last thing about the salary is, as we've both said on this show multiple times, like the next the recession's coming. It's going to come again. There's ups and downs. That's just how life is. Is uh, are you able to then? Have you positioned yourself with your salary so you're not paying yourself maybe three times what it takes you to live and, and cover your your living expenses, such that you're you're already factored in that next recession and you don't have to scale that all back down again. You're just you're just already at that level. Uh, a lot of really smart business owners uh, that I know uh, have implemented a practice that we've done is like technically Alex and I were the lowest paid people for a very very long time. Sure, you make it up on the back end with K-1 distri- distributions and dividends. That, that's what you get as being the owner and everything. 
and and there's it's completely legal. I mean, the, the idea is you you are you are paying yourself a salary again that is reasonable for your living expenses, and, and it looks and, and it looks all kosher and everything. You you'll still make it on the back end and everything, but the idea is like you eat last at, at the you got to feed everybody else first. You talked about those you know re- receivables and everything. You're the person. You're the people that are eating last, and that that's a critical fundamental yeah, and I, part. I, I would to add weathering that, that you know, watching session. your lifestyle, like if. If your goal is to be your own business owner for the rest of your life, and you, I, I really believe the concept of high probability, okay? You want to put yourself in a constant position where you have the highest probability of achieving what you want. It's not going to be 100%, but one of the ways you do that is really watch your lifestyle and your expenses. Because if you have a, you know, if you're going to weather a storm and uh, let's all face it when well, let's face it, when you start getting tons and tons of expenses, it's really hard to cut back on those expenses. It takes you a while before you recognize, Oh man, I'm in a little bit of trouble here. I better cut back on my expenses. You know, it's better not to get there in the first place. And, you know, and I would tell you the, over the 30 year period that I've been doing this um, it's been those that those smart decisions of not overspending at personal life or at work that, and I'm no, I'm far from being a Meisner. You know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I just don't have this terrible, you know, I, I know business owners who are just spending left and right, like crazy. And I'm like, wait, let's, you know, let's wait and see what happens. So, you know, Talk. Let's let's talk about the other subject. We talked about growing a business in the good times and bad, but we didn't. We haven't talked about profit, right? We talked a little bit about yeah, paying yourselves, which has to do with profit. But but um, and also, also by the way, that to add to that, there, there's a legal. You know, the IRS do, does want you to pay yourself a salary that's commiserate with the mm-hmm. size of your organization. So you got to be yes. careful with that too as well. And you also, you know, just got to be careful what you're running through the business too, from a personal standpoint too, just be careful there. But, but let's talk about the subject of a profitable business. Okay. Like many of the listeners that might be here right now, they're, they're trying to grow the top line, right? Which is the revenue, right? And then we have the, the when then we all have the aha moment, right? Where our revenue keeps going up and up and up and up. And we're not making enough profit. We're not making any any profit or enough profit. And it usually comes into vogue when you run out of cash, right? That's usually when you see you're not charging enough, right? But in the area of profit, what would you say are the top two or three things that as a business owner, you have to be worried about in regards to profit? Well, everybody wonders right away, I think, when they're first starting a business. And you can do a Google search on this and you're going to get all kinds of varied results. But the Google search is something like, what what kind of profit is acceptable for my kind of company that does X? And so for service-based business, I'm just here to tell you after after having done this for almost 15 years now, is you, minimum 
if you are below 10% danger, that is for a net giant profit, red flag. Correct. If you okay. are above 20. Yes. For net profit. Correct. Sorry. For net profit. Yep. Uh, and I'm glad you brought up like the, you know, the, 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 you're, you're, you're seeing the gross go up, but then the profit is staying and, and I'll kind of feed into that in a second here. Uh, if you're above 20% service-based business, you are doing great. If you are 30% above, you are doing excellent. What once you, once you, so there's a couple of valuations you got to look at. So if you're below 10%, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? Uh, that, that, that's your big, that's your big trigger, right? So this happened to us, uh, our worst profitable year was in 2021 and, but it was one of our highest grossing years. And I kept banging my head against the wall and going, what is going on? We are billing at record. We are billing per month, record gross revenue, but the, pro- but my bank account is never changing. Like the, the, the professional bank account. Why isn't it keep going up? This is, I don't understand what is going on. And what ended up happening in 2022 is we had 30% profit. And the difference between that year and the previous year was we had three people leave on their own accord. And it was like, oh, that was the X factor. So you, so then last year we had record amount of gross revenue, record amount of profit, and the least amount of employees that we've yep. had at F9 yep. for the past three years. Well, duh. And and sort of, this is sort of me just having to come to this conclusion um, in, in that sort of way. So once, so then, and then the flip side of it is, okay, now we're in this position of, wow, we have, we have a couple different options. We're above 30%. Is it possible now that we're established enough to where we can raise, raise me and Alex's salary to be more commensurate, like you said, with the size of our company? Yeah, probably needs to happen no matter what. I mean, our, 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 even our tax accountant and our bookkeeper said the same thing is like, you guys probably need to make a decision here because when you get to that level of, of profit, you know, you're being pushed, you're being pushed in the other way. And then the other thing that is to, to consider, which is twofold is when you get to that level, it's like, well, do I start raising fees and keep the same staff? Because if I can, if I can still make, if I, now, if I've pivoted after giving myself a bigger salary, can I maintain that profit at 20%? Somewhere between twenty and thirty percent, which is which is a great profit, as, as I as I mentioned earlier, or am I actually looking at staffing up one more time? But those kind of metrics uh, to, to to try to pin some kind of number to it to folks who are maybe just thinking about starting their own business, or even maybe you're in like year five or six. Again, we I didn't really get to that until about a decade into where we could really have enough backlog of data to run the numbers yeah, and understand that, them a little um, bit more thoroughly. So we're talking about net profit, which everybody knows about, but a good term too is gross profit. So, you know, uh, mm. everybody should be looking at their gross profit from an industry perspective and seeing if what the gross profit is in your industry. And you can even potentially call up uh, a competitor. I, I've done that a lot where I call up a competitor in another state who's not really a competitor. We're in our same industry, but we're not really competing against each other. And I say, Hey, what is your gross profit? And you know, what is your net profit? And we'll share that. And, or I'll ask my accountants because he'll see other people in the industries and he can tell me what's going on. You could, because, you know, margins have a huge effect on your net profit. And you see when you do the business model, like what you're saying, Lance, is if you run the business model, well, first thing, you everybody should be 
uh, paying attention to their KPIs or key performance indicators. One of the problems that many people have when they first start Mm -hmm. for a long time is they keep trying to grow revenue, 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 and you don't pay attention to profit, right? And literally what happens is you run out of cash and you're like, well, I don't get it. I'm, I did 5 million this year and I'm having problems making payroll. I don't get it. What's happening here? And you realize it's because you focused all your energy into revenue. You dropped your margins and therefore gross profit. And, and therefore you have a lot smaller nut at the end. Whereas if you switched it around, and you said, I'm going to focus on net profit and then revenue. And, you, and I think a, a business matures when that happens. You know, because in the beginning, you're just trying to mm-hmm. get scale, right? I want to hire some people. I don't want to have to work so hard. I want a secretary. I want an administrative assistant. I want a salesperson. I got to invest. And then when you get to that $3 million, $4 million, whatever it is, honestly, Um, then you start saying, wait a minute, why am I not making money here? Uh, has that been your experience? Absolutely. I'm so, yeah, the word mature. And I, I, I mean, I think that's where we, we finally hit that point, uh, just in the last three years where we, where we actually fully matured, we were past the, the number that everybody hears about, you know, you're, you're, if you start a business, uh, in the United States, your potential for you failing in the first seven years is very, very high. The closer you get to year seven, the lo- the lower probability that is. And then it's like, what happens after? What happens between you know on year eight, nine, ten, uh, like we're like we're at? It's like, well, that's where the maturity happens and where you start to because you're right. I, I think the other thing I would add besides that you're trying to just get some scalability is you're just trying to eat. I mean, it, I mean that's a fundamental fact of just life and business is like. I got to eat. Everybody's got to eat. Uh, so you're just trying to survive those first seven years while at the same time climbing up a mountain every day, a metaphorical mountain of getting to a, to a scalable factor so that because the idea is you got to be able to repeat yourself. You know, whether you start with one or two people as sort of the CEO and CFO and the, the head of your company, you got to repeat. You got to you got to be able to repeat the actual work or the product uh, that, that you're that you're adding to, to whatever yeah, business and, and, and industry you're in. Just- Take a step back to what I said about KPIs too, because we're talking about that, right? If you should be tracking these key KPIs every single month, you should have an Excel spreadsheet. Don't use your accounting software to look at it. Have an Excel document. Number one, what was my net profit last month? What's my net profit year to date? What What's my historical net profit, okay? What was my revenue? So on and so forth. Next, these maybe these aren't in order, but what is my account receivable? How much do people owe me? How much do I owe others? AP, accounts payable, right? What's my cash on hand, right? Um, I used to track turn on receivables too. How quickly were clients paying me? As well, so I would say, like, if they were paying me in 37 days, I was tracking those type of numbers. Are there were there are there other KPIs that you you know? There's other stuff that's industry specific that that you think are really valuable that someone should be tracking on a monthly basis. Yeah. So the biggest one is if you're a service based business, you need to make sure that you and your employees are tracking 
almost every minute of their time. There's just so many good apps for that now. The app that we use, and they're not a sponsor or anything, is Toggle, uh, T-O-G-G-L. And it's track, it's pinned to uh, architectural assignments, construction assignments, you know, whatever people are doing. So let, let's say let's say you're examining the KPI like you're saying, and look, let's say you're looking at the the metric of just uh, month over month profitability. And like we use QuickBooks, and and that the the business, the QuickBooks yeah. online and the business overview is phenomenal. Like I'm every single morning, I'm looking at that thing. Um, sometimes at night too, and and just looking at like did we meet the target of where we needed to last month. If you start to see a downtrend or maybe at the end of the year, you're looking at over a profitability and you find that like 7%, oh, I'm, at, I'm on below 10%. I, I listened to to the show with Stephen and Lance and uh, I, I'm now going, what, what did I do wrong? The metric you want to key in on is, okay, it's time to have some discussions with employees. Take a look at, are they being profitable? Um, you know, because if you're a service-based business, you're probably billing them out, uh, let's say you pay them 25 bucks an hour, you're probably billing them out two to four X on top, you know, versus that wage. And that's where your profitability comes in. So are they meeting their metric um, in terms of, you know, the time allotted for them to perform the work based on that billable rate? If they are, then the then the last thing you, you check on is like, ah, maybe this falls back onto me, the business owner. Yeah, I'm not yeah, charging I think, enough money. You know, you should be taking a day a month or at least half a day a month right? And you're running through all these scenarios of what if. So what, what, wait, 7%, why, how can I get it up to 10%? Why is it not 10%? You know, you, I'm not a, you know, believe it or not, I'm in finance, right? I'm not a great numbers guy. Okay. But, you know, I, I do love looking at those numbers. I love taking that half day and running through these different scenarios and saying, okay, let me see, you know, what's going on here. You got any, any business owner that's been experienced at their at running a business knows their numbers. They know them really well. The, if, if you talk to somebody knows their, they know their gross profit margin, they know net profit margin, they certainly know their revenue, they know their, their turn on receivables, they, they know their industry-specific stuff too, but they know them, right? And if you're not there, you got to take, and you got to really, I learned that very, very, very young in my career that you got to really know your numbers. And I usually actually, I mean, I actually separate onto an Excel document. I mean, like uh, Lance, you have a partner, I have a partner too. And so it, it's, it's interesting when you have mm -hmm. a partner, I think those discussions come up much more because you have to, you both want to share that information. You want that information, but if you don't have a partner, Sometimes you don't hold yourself accountable as much, and uh, and I think you need to do that. Agreed. Yeah, that's where I would say I get all these solicitations on LinkedIn, like everybody else does. But the ones that make me laugh the most, and I will link in with anybody. But with the ones I, I so I accept the LinkedIn connection, and then all of a sudden, within five seconds, it's hey, I'm a business coach. I want to coach your business. And I'd say, well, you're in luck because I am the business coach. Here's yeah. a link to our podcast. Check it out. <laughs> but for the people who actually need it, I think it's exactly that. It's the solopreneur. They need some cross check with them and they need to be held accountable. So like if, if, if I, if time was reversed and I didn't meet my best friend in college and I didn't become his business partner and vice versa, I would be looking for an external checkpoint somebody to check 
and take a look at what I'm doing because that is, is otherwise you don't have a feedback loop. You're just talking to a brick wall and it's not re- reciprocating to you. Um, you know, like I feel like I'm spoiled with my business partner because I have that dynamic and the people I really have a lot of empathy for is the people who are just all by themselves trying to do it all on their own. Yeah, well, I have that would this be very, very hard. Years. God bless. So I, before I had my partner and, you know, I think she's the one really who got me involved in the KPIs and the Excel documents. So um, the one thing I would say nowadays is you got to be super, super careful because everybody holds up, everybody's holding up their shingle saying they're a business coach. And I mean, what would I be looking? Mm-hmm. And it's hard because when you you don't know what you don't know, so you don't know what to look for. But I I'm a firm believer is find somebody who has um, done it before, who's built a company before. You know, like now. Although I would tell you, like when I use a business coach 20 years ago, very unusual to use a business coach. She hadn't done what I had you know, what I was trying to do. And, uh, but I, and she was, she mm-hmm. still was good. Um, the, the problem too, with a business coach is they become your therapist too. Right. Um, cause running a business is awfully True. hard, but I also True. had a mentor for 25 years to, uh, 20 years. So. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah. We, we even had a mentor right away. I think that's, that's maybe the leverage point where, if you're skeptical of the business coaches, because you brought up a really good point too about that's one of the things I always ask them is like, well, how many architecture have you? How many architects have you coached? And like none. Well, how many? How many? Uh, how many businesses yeah. have you started and and you know taken yeah. from low six figures up to seven? The problem none. is those people like, right, that have right, done maybe that. What you're- the, uh, they are they're actually pretty expensive. You know, they're really expensive. If someone's built a twenty, thirty, yes. hundred million dollar company. They're charging like you know. 5,000 a month for three hours. It's just like crazy numbers, you know? And, and rightly so. Like, like those people are clearly success stories. Like if I did that, I would try, I would try to command those kind of fees too. So, so yeah. the, the mentorship is maybe a yeah, little bit and more I, in, and, uh, in you gotta be assertive you to about be. finding a good mentor too. I mean, the mistakes I made, uh, I had a great, yeah. incredible mentor, but the mistakes that you make too, is you think, uh, that that mentor can do everything. So, um, Listen, we covered a lot of good stuff today. We talked about, you know, recessions, which is, you know, just you guys got to be ready for that. You, t- uh, you talk also, we didn't talk about uh, the opposite of recession when when there's great growth in the economy. And that's when you think that you, you, you can't do anything wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I learned that. And where you're like, oh, I'm really good business. Yeah, uh, that's because the growth, the, you know, the rising tide floats all boats right type type of concept but we also talked about mm-hmm. profits and 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 gross profits and KPIs so a lot of really good stuff if you just kind of follow through on a lot of those things so um that's all the time we have for today's podcast i'd like to thank uh Lance uh Psycho from F9 Productions. He has, also has other F production companies for coming on today's podcast and if you like today's podcast please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on a favorite on your five favorite podcasting app. This is like our 450th episode and you know, our guests are excellent. Please also give us a review. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. Again, that's FS as in financing solutions, creditline.com. Lance, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? 
A couple different ways. Like I said earlier on the show here, I'm always willing to link in with you even if you are a spam bot. I just expect spam back. Go to linkedin.com and search at the top of your search bar there, Lance Psycho. That's L-A-N-C-E, last name Psycho, C-A-Y-K-O. If you want to keep up on anything that we're doing in the architecture and building side of things, go to f9productions.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, and the last would be if you want to just, uh, if you want to hear hear our my voice and Alex's voice and all the wonderful guests we have on our show as well, go to insidethefirmpodcast.com. Uh, sign up there. We're on all... Uh, you know, terrestrial Great. listening applications on today. and YouTube. So, uh, yeah, I already did a Thanks wrap up me. of a summary of like what you kind of got to get out today. But I think the the key thing too is um, the term autodidactic. I've mentioned that before. Entrepreneurs are self taught, and they are power learners. And I mean, because it really makes a big difference. You are, you know, what you learn, and it's going to make a direct impact on how much you make. Um, now you shouldn't do it at all costs, but you know, I think, you know, continuously learning is so important. So just remember, keep doing continuous learning. Hopefully we helped you with that today. Thanks everybody. Have a great day.